is a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 13th of January 2009. For newcomers, look into the, the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and you'll find hundreds of hours of talks I've given trying to piece this big system in which we live together for you and give you some shortcuts to the understanding of how it all came about and where it's supposed to all go. Because power never allows society to run away from it. It must always direct the direction of society. And the future is always planned. It's not a conspiracy because the data is all out there. The books are all out there. And if you've lived long enough, you can put it all together. It's for the newcomers that I put the website up to save them a lot of headaches and a waste of money and time buying irrelevant books and so on or following false leads because we're under incredible scientific indoctrination all the time from every source of media we have including the written word as well also look into alanwattsentinel.eu for transcripts of these talks which you can download and print up there written in the various languages of Europe Last night I talked about a series called The Century of the Self, an excellent in-depth investigation basically into the techniques that were used on the general public, by whom, by the big associations, mainly of psychiatry and eventually psychology, and then a world body of psychiatry. There's a world body of psychiatry and how they basically came to conclusions very early on in the 20th century. Actually, I think it's much older before even the term psychiatry. They already had this agenda in mind. There's no doubt about that. Again, the evidence and the books are all there. But they used World War I. In fact, they needed World War I to bring themselves to prominence as the masters of the mind. And they proclaimed after World War I that people were simply mentally unstable, the vast majority of people, they claimed, simply had no reasonable or ability to reason properly for themselves and therefore had to be managed by those who, who proclaimed themselves able and fit to lead and decide where society should go. In other words, they cleared pretty well the whole human race outside of the elite, the scientific communities and the ruling classes. They ruled them all as insane. This has been echoed by many, many leaders in the fields of education. John Dewey and others talked about that. You'll find it in the communist writings as well, which said that everyone who wouldn't follow the obviously correct way of Marxism was technically insane. Anyone who believed in the family unit was insane. Anyone who took the old ideas of their parents and their morals and their values 
were insane. That's what also Lord Bertrand Russell was talking about when he said that, he says, we used to think, we used to think, he said in his own book, that we'd have to remove the children from the parents at birth so they would not be contaminated by the ideas of their parents. But then he found through scientific indoctrination of the children at kindergarten, they could bypass any input that the parents would try to pass on to the child. And that's been very successful, incredibly successful. These are real sciences which really work. And I'm going to go into this in a bit more depth after the following break. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, going through the, some of the techniques that have been used to guide society for over a hundred years, and longer in fact, because there were techniques being tried by certain groups before even the scientists that came out in the open. And... It was decided along, even in the 1800s, there were big, big, massive movements and world meetings, in fact, at least European meetings, to decide on a future society, a future world. They had the Concert of Europe and other big meetings. And leaders got together and discussed their own societies. They even discussed at the time uh, partial amalgamations, the idea of free trade was tossed around and so on, but they could never come to actual agreements. They all liked their own particular taxation systems because it goes to those at the top and those in businesses. And nothing much has changed except free trade has rampaged ahead outside of the control of any input by the people themselves. And we find that guys like Bernays came out of nowhere, a nephew of Freud, Supposedly, the story goes, and these are the typical stories they give you, which is nonsense. He, he wrote away for uh, one of his uncle's books on the, the great unconscious, the unconscious mind, and got all his, of his learning from there, which is nonsense. The man was obviously brought up and trained in a particular science that was unknown to most people. Because he went to work right away in his 20s working for the League of Nations, putting out the propaganda for the reasons for United Europe. He, was, he went around with President Wilson. And he didn't stop there. He was always working back and forth for presidents and the biggest corporations in the USA. And his techniques were copied, and he taught them to other ones in his, that came into his profession. Part of you go back further, as I say, you have to look at the old the old movements and what they had devised, the perfect societies, the ideas that Marx and Engels, mainly Engels actually, he, he developed Marx's theories along with Lenin. And he developed them into a, a, a kind of a slightly different way. But the idea was to bring in that, this new utopia, a world utopia, where everyone could literally be taught like an animal. Rebuilt, if you might say, like an animal, and reconditioned 
into being the perfect, eventually they called it Soviet man, the perfect world citizen. That hasn't changed at all for the goals. And we know that the Soviet system was really the big test bed, which was eventually to amalgamate with the West, which it has done quite some time ago. So much so they brought over top Soviet leaders to work in the the U.S. government. But we find another book that came out in the 1950s, and it was really one of the first to be given out to the public, given access, access to the public, about this particular science. And it doesn't go into it in tremendous depth, but it does show you the techniques that were used. And you, those who've lived through the last, the last 20, 30 years will know that these have been used because it's all through society. When you read it, you understand why certain things, fads and everything came and went. And it's called The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. On chapter 18, it talks about molding the team players for free enterprise. Molding team players. And that's true, uh, mainly starting in the U.S. and Canada. This great phenomenon of being on board, being a team player, became all the rage. Now remember, Dewey and others had talked about this long before. For education and creating a, a good society. So it wasn't... This is all interrelated by a few specialists who understood this, this science long ago, and even, as I say, before Bernays came along with it. It says, people make them work, make them work and like it. It was a headline from the Iron Age, I guess it was a magazine. The trend in American society to the other-directed man. Now, what they, they, they use terms in this particular profession that manipulates the minds of people. There's the inward man. I'm just getting off the, the book for a minute. The inward man is the, the, the man who grows up taking his values from his father, primarily, and grandfather. That's what they mean by that. Now, relate that back to what, what people like Lord Russell says, Bertrand Russell said, where they would have to take the children from the parents. He said that before he found out he could indoctrinate them perfectly through scientific techniques. They meant mainly the man, because to change a world society, uh, that which stood in their way was the old values which were held mainly by the men. And how would you get round the men? Well, you alter the men. You alter society, the society of men. You alter them. And you create a new type of man, the systems man, who's a team player. And the term they use for the one who has been encouraged to be, cut, be part of the group is the other directed man. Other means they're directed by the scientists, basically. So getting back to the book, the trend in American society to the other directed man, the man who more and more belonged to groups and played on teams, was welcomed and embedded by a large segment of the United States industry. It wasn't just industry, it was governments too. People who coalesce into groups, as any general knows, any general of an army, are easier to guide, control, cope with, and herd. Easier to guide, control, cope with, and herd. And I've said this before, that, that at one time the communists uh, 
welcome groups, the encourage groups, because once they'd been up and running for two or three years, you could gradually infiltrate your own person into the top. And now you have control of ready-made groups, all listening and waiting for your direction. They encourage it on the Internet. They're doing vast studies on all the groups and chat rooms on the Internet. They have been since they gave it to them. I've read articles where they're doing the same thing with cell phones to see who you call, and they're subtyping you into groups with you and your friends and so on. But these are from mainstream newspapers. And also, too, when any group is on the right path with something, if they can't swear off the path, they simply put in the agitator to agitate the group. It says here, People who call us into groups, as the general knows, are easy to guide, control, cope with, and herd. The team concept was an aid, if not an outright necessity, to big business and big labor and big government that came increasingly to dominate the American scene at mid-century, the 1950s. Charles Wilson, a graduate of big business, who went to work for big government as Secretary of Defense, summed up the new thinking when, in 1956, some of his leading subordinates were airing their feelings he was reported growling, anyone who doesn't play on the team and sticks his head up may find himself in a dangerous spot. Early in the 50s, Fortune magazine, which has frequently articulated the, conscious, the conscience of big business, viewed the trend uneasily and used the term Orwellian word groupthink to describe much that was going on. It suggested that businessmen, while deploring creeping socialism in Washington, might well look at some of the subtle but pervasive changes going on right in their own backyard. Its writer, William H. White, Jr., stated, a various curious thing has been taking place in this country almost without our knowing it. Well, actually, it was without most folks' knowledge. In a country where individualism, independence, and self-reliance was the watchword for three centuries, the view is now coming to be accepted that the individual himself has no meaning except as a member of a group. He said that a rationalized conformity was coming more and more to be the national ideal and cited the appearance in growing numbers of social engineers willing and eager to help business managements with their personnel problems. These social engineers, he pointed out, bore some resemblance to the students of human relations of the Elton Mayo School, who did pioneering work in diagnosing factors that cause us to work most enthusiastically. But where the latter shy at the thought of manipulating men, he added, the social engineers suffer no such qualms. In early 1957, Mr. White spelled out his apprehensions in his book, and it's an excellent book, I have it, it's called The Organization Man. This trend to the other directed person was a fact of deep interest to every persuader interested in more effective manipulation of human behavior. It showed up in many areas of American life, even in their novels, TV shows, and children's books. Then they give you a list of books and so on, and stories that captivated people. And they're actually indoctrinating you into the groupthink mentality through novels. It says here, 
in its study of the space shows on television, they were going for the youth. Remember, the technique was to, for, for social engineering, wasn't just for consumerism, wasn't just to make massive profit. They always do make massive profit, absolutely. But it's also to change society, just like science. Look at the definitions of what science and technology are there to do to change and alter society. Skinner said, remember, that you want to alter the behavior of people's you alter their environment. You put something else there that wasn't there before, like a TV set. Getting back to the book. In its study of the space shows on television, social research noted that the same other directedness is glorified. The children love these shows. The team is all, the team is all important. Think of the Star Trek series. The team is all important, and the show's appeal is based it included on the child's lack of confidence in his own ability to cope with situations that can be overcome by his gang. Back with more after the following break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. And I'm going through some of the techniques that were and are used to create this team, this groupthink, this we're all one type system we're really in today. And reading from The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. I'm going to go over this little bit again to do with television because it was aimed at the youth. Remember the youth grow up to be the next adults. The adults, they'll be adults in 20, 30 years. And the, the world is to be changed accordingly to their indoctrination that they were given when they were young. So they'll accept it thinking it's all quite normal. That's how it works. But it says here, in a study of the space shows and television, social research noted that this same other directness is glorified. The team is all important and the show's appeal is based, it concluded, on the child's lack of confidence in his own ability to cope with situations that can be overcome by his gang or team. The crisis or basic dilemma arises when the individual becomes isolated from his team and has to fight evil alone. Think of all the Star Trek series that, that followed in the 60s. That's exactly what happened there. When everyone got killed, they were stranded or cut off from the rest and were killed. But the team together always won. A professional persuader who devoted much of his effort to persuading people to support worthy causes observed that mid-century man is more easily persuaded to follow as one of a crowd under a leader than to work alone for the same end. Then he goes into even how the comedy shows work. It's a picturesque manifestation of this trend to other directedness can be seen, I suspect, in the small matter of, this is a small matter of that, but it shows you how it works, of laughter on television. It's been discovered or purportedly discovered that people who are more, are more apt to laugh and enjoy themselves if they hear other people laughing. Since live audiences are often bothersome or difficult to manage because of all the cameras, etc., or even bad jokes, put it that way, the trend in TV has been to the canned laugh, they call it canned laugh, a laugh reproduced by recording from some previous happy crowd or synthetically manufactured. The presence of one network defended the can laugh by saying no, one's, no one likes to laugh alone. Again, they're, they're counting on this group thing because, well, everyone wants to conform and be the same as the guy next. No one wants to say, I didn't get the joke. 
he goes on then to, to give you a whole series of different names where they purchased canned laughter and how they all use them. You don't even have to, to tell a real joke today. It's called like a joke in, in comedy, as the script writers say. It's like a joke. It, it follows the same routine as a joke, but there's no real punchline, but the canned laughter comes in and people start laughing. Just watch the comedies. An industry which is our main concern here, the stress on team playing coincided with the appearance on, of psychologists and other social engineers at the plants and offices. They brought to bear on sticky personnel problems the insights of group dynamics. Sociodrama. Whenever you see them doing sociodrama, they'll put a, a, a band around your, your eyes so you can't see, and they'll say, well, now you know where a, a blind person feels like stumble around for a while. All of this kind of stuff. Fall back, fall back and your friends will catch you. That's so you will stop depending on yourself and, and depend on other people. All of this stuff is very simple stuff. It's done everywhere. It's a, a form of drama, you see. Sociodrama, group psychotherapy. This is for staff. Social physics. As Fortune put it, a bewildering array of techniques and disciplines are being borrowed from the social sciences for one great cumulative assault on the perversity of man. The magazine per protested that group conference techniques had taken such a hold that in some company executives literally do not have a moment to themselves that they attend these meetings all the time and go through all this drama stuff and spill out their feelings and emotions and have it all recorded. If an employee became, becomes disaffected by company policy or environment, the social engineers feel it their duty to help him get rid of his mental unhealth. Fortune uh, quoted one social engineer as stating, clinical psychologists have had great success in manipulating the maladjusted individual. It seems to me that there is no reason why uh, we shouldn't have as much success applying the same techniques to executives. And now it's applied to all of society. Because they want to test your mental health and have you participate in communitarianism, as they call it now, community events. The growing insistence that management people be team players started producing business officials with quite definite personality configurations. This was reveal, revealingly indicated by Lyle Spencer, president of Science Research Associates in Chicago, when he made a study of the Young President's Organization. These are men who became presidents of their companies before they were 40. Necessarily, or at least consequently, most of the young presidents are heads of relatively small companies rather than the big ones. And commenting, commentating on their personalities of these young professionals or presidents, Mr. Spencer said, they're less team players. One thing prevents them from being president of General Motors. They haven't learned to be patient conformists. Patient conformists. They have lived too long freewheeling. So being, in other words, individualistically, doing their own thing individualistically. So you have to become a patient conformist to get up to GM position. And I can hear the music coming in, and I will continue with this because all of these techniques are used throughout society and all schools and have been for a long time. And we are not who we think we are as individuals anymore. Be back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. And reading from Vance Packer's book, The Hidden Persuaders, to show you some of the techniques that have been used for a long time on the general public and are now used on whole nations through every strata of society. It's throughout local government. It's on all board management levels of everything around you, school boards and so on. And it's all through the federal governments as well. They go through all of this kind of training. It says here, page 178, a personal executive of Sears Roebuck in writing a book that for the guidance of hundreds of thousands of American school youngsters stressed the thought that when you take a job you become a member of a working team. Don't expect the rest of the group to adjust to you. They got along fine before you came. It's up to you to become one of them. As David Reisman observed in another connection, some companies such as Sears Roebuck seem to be run by glad handers. An indication of the ways the depth approach to employee relations was put to use is seen in these developments. Science Research Associates Chicago, which has a dozen PhDs on its staff, began offering businesses the services of trained, experienced psychologists and sociologists. For these functions, among others, evaluating candidates for executive positions, finding out what employees think about their jobs and company, evaluating the performances of employees, more effectively, several companies were reportedly employing a psychiatrist on a full-time basis, and increasingly employees began being psychotested in various ways while on the job. At a Boston department store, Girls Clarks had to wait on customers with the knowledge that psychologists were somewhere in the background watching them and recording their every action on an instrument called an interaction chronograph, which was a kind of tape recorder, really. The notations made of each girl's talk, smile, nods, gestures, while coping with a customer provided a picture of her sociability and resourcefulness. Well, look how far they've gone today with this, with cameras everywhere, as they watch and study your interactions with people. But it doesn't stop there either, because I've mentioned before about how important the wives were in some of these big corporations. And it's the same, too, through some of the respectable, charitable organizations, put it that way. It says, even a man's home life at, 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 at many companies began being scrutinized to see if it conformed to the best interest of the team or company. A business writer for the New York Herald Tribune reported in the early 50s on the great manhunt for qualified executives that was being carried on by professional recruiting teams which had come into existence for this specialized purpose. He related some of the qualities they were looking for in the modern executive and said, another point of equal importance is the wife. That is being emphasized more and more. Professional manhunters place family adjustment high in job qualifications. The same story is being told by all firms in this field, including Ward Howell, Andy Associates Incorporated, Ashton Dunn Associates, Boyd Associates Inc., or Sorzano, Antel and Wright. Important men may not be recommended for higher-priced jobs because their wives may be too flirtatious or she may not drink her cocktails too well. 
she may be incorrigible gossip. Investigations in this respect are quite thorough. And they are thorough because today you're getting constant questionnaires when you go for these jobs. And even when you're going through the jobs, you get these little questionnaires. And there's questions in there which seem very, very innocent and it's to t- trick you and throw you off. It's other data they're after, not what you think would be the actual answer. They're after other answers. And you can pretty well tell where your loyalties will lie ultimately with your family or with the company. Again, back to this book, it says here, psychological consultant James Bender advises me that a major producer of cellular cotton products asked him to help set up a manpower program built around wives. He said that before the company hires an executive or salesman, the man's wife is interviewed as the last step before the hiring decision is made. It's a mutual sizing up, he explained. The wife is surprised of what the job may mean in terms of demands on the family life and inconveniences such as moving, husbands being away a good deal, etc. He said that in a few cases, wives after the interview have persuaded the husband not to take the job. And in a few other cases, we've decided after sizing up the wife not to hire the husband. Some of the companies tend to look at the wife as a possible rival to them for the man's devotion. Fortune, in a remarkable article in October 1951, detailed the growing role of the wife in company thinking. It surveyed executives across the nation and quoted one executive as saying, mournfully, we control a man's environment and business and we lose it entirely when he crosses the threshold of his home. Management, therefore, has a challenge and an obligation deliberately to plan and create a favorable, constructive attitude on the part of the wife that will liberate her husband's total energies for the job. What were the men's, what were the main traits corporations looking for in the wife? Fortune continued, management knows exactly what kind of wife it wants. With remarkable uniformity of phrasing, corporation officials all over the country sketched the ideal. In her simplest terms, she's a wife who is highly adaptable, highly gregarious, very good in company because they'll have a lot of cocktails at the top without saying something you shouldn't, realizes her husband belongs to the corporation. Belongs to the corporation. The Harvard Business Review put the demands of the corporation even more vividly in carrying a report on a study of 8,300 executives made by Lord or Lloyd Warner and James Abergoyne. It stated that the mid-century American wife of an executive must not demand too much of her husband's time or interest because of his single-minded concentration on the job even as sexual activity is regulated to a secondary place. Becoming a sex successful team player clearly can have its joyless aspects. In July 54, a magazine published primarily for businessmen, The Changing Times, took a look at the world of tomorrow. By tomorrow, it meant a decade hence, in 1964. They explained that big business, big government, and big unions would tend to level people down to a common denominator where it would be harder for a man to be independent, individualistic, or his own boss. And that's exactly what they've done, because governments themselves, with their own laws and taxations and standards, have put most small private business out of the running across a good part of Europe, and they're doing the same in the States and Canada. An upper level of scientists, engineers, and businessmen will pretty much run business and industry. And that ties in with Professor Carol Quigley, who said the new system that's coming in is a form of feudal system where the CEOs 
of corporations would be the new feudal overlords. Getting back to the book, it says, they themselves will be more highly trained technically and less individualistic, screened for qualities that will make them better players on the team. Almost everybody will have to go through extensive psychological and attitude screening. Almost everybody will have to go through extensive psychological and aptitude screening. No longer may the bearded scientist fiddle with retorts in his cubbyhole. Perhaps that day when there would be no place for an individualist to hide was not far off in the future as changing times seemed to assume. At graduation time in 1956, Newsweek ran the results of a survey on what kind of college graduates, especially traits, industrial recruiters were looking for. They reported that words dynamic conformity kept cropping up as the recruiters outlined their specifications and explained industries flesh merchants shy off the bookwormy and the oddball. We'd rather have a, a dicky than a Phi Beta Kappa, they reported. Let the freaks go into research. Even there in research, apparently, they shouldn't assume they can go off in some retreat by themselves. Team research is the coming thing. Well, it's done. It's a done deal today. The whole team research bit. Now, I'll try and keep reminding you that even with this data here, where the man is showing you the techniques were coming through from the 1950s onwards, that psychiatry had a mandate in itself to basically be a form of guardians of the world, as they called themselves, where they wanted and demanded at one point to be put on the boards of corporations and also in government to watch over governmental officials and prime ministers and presidents. They blamed all wars on the individual, in fact. Uh, which, and I always wondered about that because it takes the masses to follow. And see, there's a symbiosis between the masses and the individual. But there's also a, a, a symbiosis between the masses and, and those that lead them. The individual is stuck in the middle, really. It's squeezed out by the masses because the masses themselves want conformity. Racism is very roots. It's about differences. You don't need a different color or a different language to be involved in racism. You see it in any school you go to. Where those that are not in the in crowd or they seem weak in some way or other are picked on by the others because they're different. And in wars, it's the masses that do what they're told. The masses won't, won't dare kill anybody individually. But when they're told to kill someone by their government and wear this uniform, they will do it and get rewarded for it. Here's double think for you. Here's double think in, in its most common, basic sense. So the symbiosis between those that lead and the masses that follow, glumly perhaps at times, is essential in, for their system. It's those stuck in the middle that want to be individuals and who can live and let live that have the problem in the system because they're not taking into account at all by either group. 
getting back to this book and summing it in, or, or at least putting it in with, remember the necessity to destroy the family that was all through Marxism and all through the philosophies running the ruling elite of some countries like the UK, such as Lord Bertrand Russell, who helped test a lot of these schools on, uh, for children to make them do things that, that weren't was prohibited in the, the schools that existed. And um, it was interesting how they got away or got around these particular problems. What they had to do, to say, is get the man out of the picture. The females they found were so easily manipulated. Women are more apt to try anything new. No matter how crazy it seems at the time, they will, they will try it. They go for motivational behavior modification. They actually go for it in droves to be the new you. Anything that promises them to be the new you, they go for 90-odd percent of all advertising magazines are aimed at women. Because through them you change the family unit. That's what Hitler said himself. Hitler said we shall promise them safety and food. Basically shouting over the head of the man, you see. He says the female will come to us. So you aim the propaganda at the female. Bush has done the same thing. We will keep you safe. You will only give up your freedom for security. Same technique. The Hitler said the woman will come to us, the child will follow the mother, and then must follow the man. These techniques are, are known and used over and over again. How do you get the man out of the picture? And we've all grown up with this. It says here to do with children. It's called the psycho-seduction of children. Page 139. I feel can appeal to a child found without necessarily offending the child's amusements or pleasure. It appeals if it helps him express his inner tensions and fantasies in a manageable way. It appeals if it gets him a little scared or mad or befuddled and then offers him a way to get rid of his fear, anger, or befuddlement. And then it says, Social research diagnosed the appeal of the highly successful howdy duty and found some elements persist or present that offered children listening far more than childish amusement. So they're already doing it then. Clear Bell, the naughty clown, was found consistently to exhibit traits of rebellious nature. So the child identifies with the clown. Clear Bell, it noted, represents children's resistance to adult authority and goes generally unpunished. So if, if Clear doesn't get, uh, and Clear Bell doesn't get punished, then the child thinks it's wrong if he gets punished as well. The report stated, in general, the show utilizes repressed hostilities to make fun of adults or depicts adults in an unattractive light. The bad characters like Chief Thunder Thud, Mr. Blockbuster, Mr. X, are all adults. They're depicted either as frighteningly powerful or silly. When the adult characters are shown in ridiculous situations, such as being all tangled up in their coats or outwitted by the pupils or the puppets, the child characters in the show are shown as definitely superior. In other words, it explained that there's a reversal process with the adults acting childish and incompetent and children being adult and clever. It added that the master of ceremonies, Buffalo Bob, was more of a friendly, safe uncle than a parent. And that would represent the teacher that takes over from the parent schools. This is, this is psychology. This, this is planned manipulation of altering society. And through all the comedy shows, it's been on, on the go for about 30, 40, 50 years. The same situations for adults. 
not just in the cartoons, although it's still in the cartoons. It says, all the sly sniping at parent symbols takes place while mother, unaware of the evident symbology, chats on the telephone content in the knowledge that her children are being pleasantly amused by the childish antics shown electronically on the family's wondrous pacifier. Entering next to the space shows, the social research psychologists found here that the overall format, whether the show was set in the 21st century or the 24th, was basic patterns of good guys versus bad men. Good guys versus bad men, that's the words they used, with up-to-date scientific and mechanical trapping. Note that it said bad men, not bad guys. The good guys, interestingly, were found to be all young men in their 20s organized as a group with very strong team loyalty. Now, with the said in communism, don't trust anybody over 30, then they dropped it. Because they had to separate the generations. Because the older generations would contaminate the younger with old think of morality. So the good guys were interested and were found to be all young men in their 20s, organized as a group, not an individual, but as a group, with very strong team loyalty. The leader was pictured as a sort of older brother, not a father symbol. And the villains or cowards were all older men who might be symbolic or father figures. They were either bad or weak. Much of this fear might be construed as being anti-parent sniping, offering children an exhilarating and safe way to work off their grudges against their parents. To children, the report explained adults are a ruling class against which they cannot successfully revolt. And the UN has used terms like that as well in the rights of the child. We're back with more after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix showing you some of the techniques that are used and have been used and they're actually more advanced and all pervasive today. Talking about how they decide to do the psycho-seduction of children. The report confided some pointers to TV producers for keeping parents pacified. In other words, the parents are watching the television and the ads, etc., that were geared at the children. They had to find a way to pacify the parents so they wouldn't get upset. Says one way suggested was to take the parents' side in such easy, thoughtful ways as having a character on television admonish Junior to clean his plate. And at the same time, of course, what they're doing is trying to get Junior to want what he sees in the ad. But as long as the father sees the character on the ad, the father figure admonishing the child on TV, he feels that he's still in control. So when Junior then asks him for the toy, he'll, he'll say in a authoritative way, well, I, I guess so, you know, but to clean your plate. <clears throat> simple, simple stuff like that gets around, gets around you. It's a tool, it's a weapon, actually. Television is an incredible weapon. They actually called the children that they were studying, by the way, or the groups they were targeting back in the 50s, Moppets. Not Muppets, but Moppets. So this is where the term came from. So some of the United States product makers evidently solicited the favor of Moppets by building aggressive outlets right into their products. 
Public Relations Council and Motivational Enthusiast E.L. Bernays was reported as 1354 that the most successful breakfast cereals were, build, were building crunch into their appeal to appease hostility by giving outlet to aggressive and other feelings. How many parents got driven nuts with the sound of the, when, when the little Johnny was being a bit aggressive and showing his hostility? This is all understood by the guys who made it more crunchy. This is one aspect of the juvenile merchandising that intrigued the depth manipulation was a craze or fad. It also talks about fashions. And actually, there's a good section here called the feminization of the male. See, the old, the, the, the inward type man, the old type that took his values from his previous generations and was individualistic, didn't really care much about dressing in the 19, early 1950s. So they went to work to try to change him to create a sort of peer group image so he'd have to keep up and join the big group. That's how psychology works in all directions at the same time make you belong and they trained the females they advertised at the females to do the shopping for their husband to bypass his objections to all the new clothes and the new fads strange colors and all the rest of it that they're going to bring into vogue that's the power of advertising so here's the man being devalued in cartoons on television serials and puppet shows and comedies and these advertisers know exactly what they're doing. Because the child also says, well, my mum even shops and, and picks things from my dad. He's got no sort of say in anything. He's irrelevant. I remember the movie, it was called American Beauty, which portrayed a lot of this in the actual movie, at least the outcome of this in the movie, where the daughter watches the mother, who's no respect whatsoever for the husband, and becomes the same herself and actually asks a guy as a boyfriend to kill the father that's how much it's gone it's gone further than that even into other areas well that's it for tonight so from Hamish and myself in a very cold interior of Canada it's good night may your God or your gods go with you